Many maybe aren't familiar with the Bible. We're so glad you're here. Um, we, uh, so we've printed this text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those Bibles in the pew home with you. Zechariah chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we're going to be reading through verse 13, the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You may be seated. Would you pray with me and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord, we're needy. And the thing we need most from you is for you to come and speak to us through your word. By your spirit, may we hear the voice of Jesus calling out to us and, and reorienting our lives and shaping us transforming us. This is what we need from you. We need your presence with us. And so, Lord, come and do a work of redemption in all of our lives. Maybe some, for the very first time, bringing them to Jesus. They could find refuge and hope in times like this. Lord, it's what we all need. And so work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's, uh, I've been thankful to be in such an um, obscure book, um, such as Zechariah, during this just times of great uncertainty that is our current day. It's a, it's a very disorienting time. I'm sure you've felt it. I've, I was telling someone yesterday, I have corona fatigue. Um, I just, I don't, and, it's, and I realized, that, come on, because there are disorienting messages. What should we shut down? What are the motives behind when people shut down this disorienting voices? Who should you listen to? Who should you believe? There are disorienting circumstances. Even the stock market is all over the place. What's going on and where are we going and what's next? And 
in this uncertainty is a time that fuels anxiety and fear for us. And then anxiety becomes the fuel often for depression. And some of you are probably feeling that downward slide in your lives. And part of what makes this time so disorienting is that the typical places where we find refuge and hope are just falling apart around us as well. They're too weak to hold and help because we're so vulnerable they can't stand up against the massive threat that we see coming our way and it's in these times that the Lord has historically when he makes us feel our frailness it's the times when he historically has done the most tremendous work in the life of his church it's in these times when we feel our frailness, and we're so disorienting that Zechariah speaks into us, particularly his first six chapters, which are a series of visions. That's the type of literature that this is. It's apocalyptic, we've said. It's apocalyptic literature, and the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to pull back the curtain of our seen circumstances to show us what the Lord is up to in the world. It's his way of saying what you can see and taste and touch isn't what is most real. What is most real is what I am doing that you cannot see. That's what it means to live by faith and not by sight. To trust that what God reveals in his word is what is most true and to put the anchor of our soul into the unshakable, unchanging promises of God. That's what it means to live by faith and by sight. That is what is most real, Lord, not what I see on the news or catch on Facebook. And so Zechariah is some visions for us. And it's, it's really, I think, pressing in to the, most, the questions that we're most asking right now. Here, here's probably the, the question that we're asking. Maybe the first question, if not, it's in the constellations of questions. Lord, do you know what's going on? In Zechariah's first vision, God does this. He pulls back the curtain and you see a a vision of the Lord's patrol scouting the whole earth. And he's saying, I am the all-knowing God who is aware of all things. I've even counted the number of hairs on your head. You lost a couple today. You didn't even know it, but I, I know because I'm the all-knowing God. And then his second vision, Lord, are you in control? If you know, are you in control? And he sees a vision of the Lord toppling the nations of the world because he is the all-powerful God who controls all things, even the nations of the world and even the viruses that you can't see. Lord, do you care about your people? If you know and you're all-powerful, do you care about me? And that's our vision today, verse 1. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. The man is surveyor. He's surveying Jerusalem, that measuring line in his hands. He's measuring the city. The city had been devastated by the Babylonians, and God had promised that this, re, this city would be rebuilt, and, 
and he would be present there. And so he's measuring out the city, the city that needs to be rebuilt. Because Jerusalem at the time was the center of God's people and the center of God's redemptive purposes. And this is what the Lord says about his people in verse 4. Your vision for what I will do for my people is too small. You don't need to measure the city. Run. There's a sense of urgency. Say to that young man... Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Why? Because the multitude of people and livestock in it, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. There is a drive in all of us to be in the presence of glory, participating in something bigger than ourselves. Have you ever thought about how silly it is to get someone's autograph? I mean, what value is there in someone's signature when there's nothing tied to it? I mean, if if an athlete wants to sign over a document that says I can have one of their really expensive luxury cars, then that signature has value because it, it actually is transferring something. But a signature in and of itself, it's worthless. I think we, we, we love or we seek that because an autograph is a token that says, I have been in the presence of glory. There's evidence of it. Look at this. I got him to sign my shirt. A place can be transformed from the ordinary to the extraordinary by the, the presence of glory. Think of, of what happens when a, a wedding ceremony is, is transformed when the bride enters her room and all in the room and all of her glory. Everyone stands up. All of a sudden, game on. The procession leading her in. Pay attention to the groom, but oh, the bride. It's, it's not when the groom walks in that people are amazed. It's when the bride in her glory transforms the presence of that room. And she gets all the attention. I, often when I stand and do weddings, I... Everyone's watching the, the bride. I want to watch the groom's face because he's seen the glory of his beloved come in for the first time in all of her array. We long for these, these moments. And this is where Israel was. They needed to be reminded that they were God's chosen people, the place where his plans of redemption would be carried out, that he and his glory would come back to his beloved people because their centuries of disobedience and worship had caused God to bring judgment on them in exile. The once glorious nation of Israel had been spread throughout all the Persian Empire and those who had returned in the first wave of exiles returning back to Jerusalem when Cyrus had issued an edict sending them back came back to a city that had lost all of her glory. And so Zechariah the prophet. God is encouraging. His deeply discouraged people. Because he is reminding them. That because of his promises. They are part of something. So much bigger. And glorious. You see the hope of God's people. Is that the Lord in all of his glory. Will be in their presence. Because his glory transforms their 
experience. And where the Lord is present in all of his glory, there is safety. Verse 5. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. And then verse 13, it ends. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. Why? For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is what is at the heart of the gospel. God in solidarity with his people. On the side of his people. He will be present with them. And where he is present with them, he will fight for them. We saw this in Psalm 91. Don't be afraid of the pestilence that's coming. Because you belong to the Lord who loves his people and will protect them. God had made a promise all the way back to Abraham, the head of the people, and he said this, twofold, I will be your God, you will be my people. Here's what will come out of that arrangement. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, will curse. I am on your side. So when he says, the Lord is roused from his dwelling, he's coming to fight for his people, to provide His glory in their presence where they would be safe. There is a deep solidarity between God and his people. This is what it means to be one with Jesus Christ. And if you just lead into that with like God's on the side of his people. Then it can lead to some really strange prideful experiences. But if we follow the pattern of our service today. We came in saying God you said We should obey you. And what all it did is incite us to disobedience because there's so much wickedness and sin in my life. And so I am putting my hope in Jesus Christ alone. And the only reason that you are on my side is not because I'm a good person, but because Jesus is your son and my savior and enough for me. And so he's on my side, not because... I've got my act together because he is a God who's gracious and provided me Jesus. And the solidarity between the Lord and his people is so precious and tender. In verse 8, he says this. They are the apple of my eye. So he says of of Babylon, I'm roused in anger against you because you have touched the apple of of my eye. That is, that's the pupil. You see what he's saying is he's saying, you know that part of your body that is so, so tender and so vulnerable, that part of your body that you will protect at all costs. That's how I consider my people. And now I'm angry at the nation that touched you. And I will, verse 9, shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Verse 9, this is what God's saying. He's saying, look, the, the Persian Empire might appear to be secure now. You'll remember the vision from first one, uh, the first vision. The patrols were sent out, and the word that comes back, the nations are at rest, and we're in disarray. What is going on, Lord? Let's pull back the curtain. He says, this is what's going to go on. You're going to plunder the great empire of the Persians because they are no match for me in your presence because they have touched the apple of my eye and I am a God who protects the weak 
and vulnerable. And that's you and that's me. Do you know, want to know true safety in the midst of threats that surround us? Then entrust yourself to the care of the Lord Jesus who rouses himself to protect what is most vulnerable and tender to him. Verse 6. This is why he's calling out to his people to return to Jerusalem, that place of refuge. Up, up, flee from the land of the north. See, in 538, Israel was sent into exile by Babylon, and they had become comfortable there. Life was working out fairly well for them there. And the Lord is saying, don't you know that I'm going to judge that nation, and it will not be comfortable for you to flee back to my city. The place where you're now dwelling is not a safe place for you, but the place where I will set up my glory and be present fighting my people's battles is the place of safety. Verse 7, up, escape to Zion, you who dwell in the daughter of Babylon. And perhaps it's times like these that the Lord is calling out to his people who've gone away, return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. The, the world is no place of refuge for you. Science and all of its achievements, government and what it's able to do, planning and wealth and education and technological advancements are not refuges. They cannot protect you from a simple virus. How can they protect you from ultimate things? So now the place of refuge, though, and safety is not found in a place in the Middle East, but in a person in whom the glory of God dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2.9. Because in Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So flee to Jesus in these times, there is nothing that is strong enough. That is the Lord's call to you today. Come and find refuge and become one with him. And then the Lord will be on your side. And all that belongs to Jesus will belong to you. And you will become the apple of his eye. I don't know where we all are spiritually. But that call just goes out. Come to me and find refuge and me to dwell with Jesus, to find refuge in Jesus, is also to find refuge in his church because the Lord defends and protects his people because we are precious to God. Listen to what Paul says about the church when it's sort of gathered as we are today. Through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You, you hear what he's saying is this. The angels, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are ignorant of the full glory of God until they see the full glory of God manifests in the church. The angels who See and cover their eyes. Holy, holy, holy. They have direct access to the throne room of God. Don't see the full glory of God until they look on the people that the Lord has redeemed. And then they see this is the God, the creator, 
glorious in his work of creation. The God who rules all creation. He's glorious in all his creation. But he is most, his glory is most fully realized. When he sees, when they see that God has provided a refuge for sinners in Jesus Christ. And the things that are so clearly displayed around here. Because look around. I mean, everyone's story is just as bad as yours. Everyone here is a story of redemption. Of God conquering our sin. It's power in our lives. Making us new people with the spirit of Jesus Christ. Making us one. Every single one of us has a story of brokenness. Leading to redemption. We can't defend ourselves against the Lord's wrath. That's what our story is. Lord, we've got to find ourselves in in Christ. And in his church. There's no organization that will stand the fires of the judgment of God. That refines and brings new heavens and new earth. But his body. Charles Spurgeon has this famous quote on the church. He says this, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you will feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment that I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. And it is the dearest place because God dwells with his people. Verse 10. The reason that Jerusalem should be so glorious is that the Lord will return to dwell in her midst. At three different times during this vision, this is what the Lord promises to be in the midst of his people. I'm going to be in the midst of his people. I'll be in the midst of his people. And here's what's going on. God is present everywhere. He dwells everywhere. To him there is no beginning or no end. He is infinite. There is though a special way that he dwells with his people. He's here. And where he is here, he is here with redemptive power. That's what he means when he says, I'll be in the midst of my people. I'll be there with all of my power to redeem all that is broken in your life. It's humble power, though. It's so easy to miss. It it just seems so plain, doesn't it? Preaching is just so plain. The reading of the Bible is just so plain. It's just not all that exciting. I, I often, when I invite people to Zion, I'll tell them, you know, uh, here I'll make you two promises. One, um, we won't be the most exciting church you visit. So not a lot of flash here at Zion. But if you'll give us four weeks, then you will experience the redemptive power of God in your life. And you'll leave saying, I think I've been different. And God's glory dwells there. It seems so humble, doesn't it? We have no light show, no power band, no offense, Cam. 
I stand here in a plain back robe every Sunday, but perhaps the reason that so many churches feel the need to put on so much hype is because there's no glory of the Lord present or they do not believe that his glorious presence is enough. You know, in Jesus' ministry, he was often missed. I mean, so many. I mean, can you think of the amount of people that passed by him on a daily basis, just completely oblivious that the glory of God was present in the midst and doing works of redemption. Every once in a while, he'd flash up and he'd heal somebody and they'd be amazed. But for 30 plus years, just the power of God clothed in frail humanity. When you see the Apostles Paul's fear was that he would rob the gospel of its power to change our lives. And how would he rob the gospel of its power? By taking away its humble plainness. I don't want to adorn it with flowery words or special things or rhetorical devices. I just want to preach Christ and Him crucified because it is the power of God in our midst. And it is enough. And that's an optimistic vision. You see again, verse 4. Run and say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people. And and the reason he's telling them run is he's saying, look, the surveyor won't be able to measure what I am going to do in the midst of this tumultuous time. My people are going to be so numerous that no city could contain it. We, during times like this, we should expect growth. Our own growth, individually, spiritually, we should just Lord, what are you up to? Expect growth in his kingdom. There are times when he renews faith. Times when he expands the reach. And the man with the measuring line is, is to be interrupted because they don't need a wall anymore. Not only is the city going to grow so large, but walls were a way of defending a city in the ancient Near East. And instead of of the city growing past its walls, it's going to have a new form of walls. The Lord is going to be a fire around her. He is turning their expectation from scared to expectant. Turning their posture from defensive to aggressive. Let's be honest, our default posture is unbelief and cynicism. I mean, I can wake up in the morning and put that on. I don't even need coffee to get cynicism going. But the people of God must never take a defensive posture. We carry out our mission with the expectation that souls will be won from Satan's kingdom because Jesus the King has risen victorious over sin, Satan, and death. He has taken his throne in heaven and all things have been put under his feet. Speaking of God's immeasurable power in Jesus Christ, Paul writes this, Ephesians 1, verse 20. The power of God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Not just any normal death. Then life, that happened before. 
Those things happened. This is a sin-cursed man bearing all of the weight of God's wrath, being raised from the dead. That requires a tremendous power of redemption. And he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he has put all things under Jesus's feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells all in all. And so this is the tension that we feel and what we like to call the now and the not yet. This is our reality. We live in a world where our bodies can be invaded by things that are so small and take down entire countries and economies in a matter of days. There is mass uncertainty right now because of the coronavirus. Stock markets are going haywire and people are hoarding toilet paper. That's how out of whack things are and I think at times like these they just simply expose the kingdoms that are present in this world the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God's beloved son the king of glory in whom all of God's present dwells and who is seated on his throne and coming again That should free us. If that is what is most true, that should free God's people to give generously in times like this. There's no need for fear. This is a time for mission and redemption, for service and suffering, for generosity and love. Because we belong to an unshakable kingdom. Verse 10, there's this response. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shout my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And so perhaps as you sing, as you wash your hands, and you've grown tired of the happy birthday song, let me give you another one to sing. Each of these verses are 30 seconds long. I've timed them. They will do that extra measure of love. The church is one foundation. Verse 3. Though with a scornful wonder we see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints, their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation, the fourth verse, and tumult of her war, she waits her consummation of peace forevermore. 
till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, oh, how we need you. Every hour, we need you. And having been in your glorious presence, would you send us out with hope that we might serve the world that is crashing in fear around us. May we be a people sing aloud for the presence of the glorious Lord is in our midst in the person of Jesus Christ and we are one with him and he is fighting for our victory. And as the pestilence comes, let us not fear, but hope with expectation that the Lord in all of his glory is on the move in our world. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.